A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. It's Friday, November 4th. For many of us, binge-watching became part of our pandemic lives, spending all those months indoors with nothing else to do. But now that things have opened up, I reserve my binge-watching for only the most enticing programs, the ones I just can't stop watching once I've started. This week, I started watching Kingdom of Dreams, a new documentary series on the fashion industry, and I just couldn't stop. Kingdom of Dreams traces the rise of the modern luxury goods industry and its two dominant groups, LVMH and Caring, but also explores the impact that this has had on the lives of its foremost designers in the 1990s, John Galliano, Alexander McQueen, Marc Jacobs, and Tom Ford. It is at once an education on how the modern industry came to be and how its excesses have taken a planetary and human toll. This week on the BOF podcast, our editor-at-large, Tim Blanks, who is one of the talking heads in the series, speaks to the series creators to get the backstory on how it all came together. Here are Ian Bonnot and Peter Etegui with Tim Blanks on the BOF podcast. I'm very happy to be here today with Ian Bonnot and Peter Etegui, the producers of the new TV series Kingdom of Dreams, 
which is a look at fashion in its golden era, as I like to think of it, the 1990s, and then the fallout from that golden era. I'd like to start, actually, Ian and Peter, by reading the little precy that popped up on um, IMDb. And their description of the series is, a French entrepreneur uses young punk talent to reinvigorate fading fashion couture houses and become the richest man in the world. What could possibly go wrong? What do you make of that? Love it. <laughs> that would probably have got us the finance a lot quicker, a, a synopsis like that. Would you say that kind of defines your approach to the subject? I, I was very intrigued the other night when you launched the show at the Victoria and Albert Museum, and Ian, I think he referred to it as a gothic fairy tale. And the setup of the show and those IMDb words, it has a real Game of Thrones feel. And I wondered if that was actually the intention. Yes, totally. I mean, just generally the way we approach nonfiction documentaries is always to try to harness it with a sort of genre or sort of concept. And yes, Gothic Fairy Tale is completely right. That's Peter and I and uh, the directors kind of set out to make the show. Game of Thrones in, <laughs> is obviously a stretch, but I think the analogy is interesting. And in fashion, you're talking about the House of Givenchy, you're talking about the House of Dior's, which has got similarities with the houses within the Game of Thrones world. I think if we track back a little bit, one of the main things that when we finished McQueen, which we felt we hadn't really delved into, was the business side of achieving to create the Couture House. Lee Alexander McQueen is probably one of the latest couture house, like old couture house to have created, at least in the UK. So because the time when it happened is a lot closer to us, we were able to look into it. And when you look back at the older French houses and what happened and where they are now from being a single-handedly hold and owned and created and, and run by a single couturier, and now to actually those very well-run, well-oiled, corporate companies, there's a massive difference in such a short amount of time. And what we've realized is that difference and that change is almost a reflection of globalization at a bigger scale in other industries. So all those things kind of got us really interested and and intrigued. I guess what emerges in the show is these sort of imperial figures in fashion. Well, namely Bernard Arnault, the head of LVMH, which owns Dior and Givenchy. And there is a sort of Machiavellian element that emerges during the show. And to get back to the Game of Thrones thing, your use of music and the credits of the show, the opening titles, there's a sort of ominous quality. I I mean, you mentioned your McQueen documentary there, and there was that same incredibly beautiful way that the story was told. Very, very cinematic. And I'm very happy to see a documentary about fashion that actually elevates that side of the industry because there is all of that very intense drama. I guess it is almost gothic. It's very clear in this show. I wonder, Peter, when you finished McQueen, you felt there was a lot of unfinished business with the industry, with the story that you'd been telling. We did, absolutely. I mean, we were particularly intrigued by the tussle for McQueen's soul between, on one hand, Bernard Arnault, Givenchy, LVMH, and on the other hand, 
the Gucci group, which later becomes Caring, and Pino and Arno. And we kind of heard of Pino and Arno, obviously, but we kind of thought these are fascinating figures and this sort of interplay between, as you say, these sort of emperors on one hand and the wizard like McQueen on the other. And the fact that Tom Ford was part of the equation as well, it just seemed like there was so much more to sort of unpack in that story. And then, of course, we read Dana Thomas's book about the handbag wars. Well, not just about the handbag wars, but deluxe. And that became a sort of a reference point as well. We didn't necessarily want to go back to make another sort of fashion biopic documentary. We thought that actually to kind of address the wider context of McQueen that McQueen was working in could be really fascinating. And so we opted for that. And we also liked the idea of having a large ensemble of characters rather than just focusing on one particular wizard. Well, obviously, you think of yourself as outsiders with the fashion industry. So therefore, do you feel that the story you're telling actually is enormously interesting and entertaining for the audience, which is also outside fashion? I mean, there can't be many industries that have as many preconceptions attached to them as fashion. And do you think in a way that you're tearing the veil off those preconceptions, that you're actually telling a story that is quite universal in a way, even though it is attached to an industry that most people would think of was quite elitist and had very little to do with them? I totally agree. It's a very difficult industry for people to actually understand because I think the term fashion is almost wrong. I think Peter and I, after many years uh, working on different projects within that world. It's more haute couture than just fashion, what we are really interested. That element that is actually in the hands of the artist at the top, not saying there's no artistry or creativity within loads of other layers of fashion. But I think what Peter and I were really interested in showing to the world is that that top hand, which is actually the catwalk show of some of the top, couturiers, the top artisans, the top artists, trickles down and the creativity trickles down. But at the same time, those moments are like amazing collection for some artists or the pinnacle of some movies for some directors. But to, in a way, simplify it and get the enough emotion and drama into it, you can't only celebrate those people or just the drama of creating a collection. Well, what we felt was the most interesting drama is this constant fight between commerce and creativity. And I think that's where Kingdom of Dreams' inherent basic theme comes from, is, is how those tycoons, those... Again, Peter and I think those tycoons are geniuses in their own rights, how they identify a very dusted, very sort of stale industry which needed checking up. But what we actually pay attention to is did they shake it up a bit too much? Did they push it a bit too much? Have we actually gone slightly on the other side? And those are questions we leave for the audience to, to, to understand themselves. And I truly believe that we try to make it approachable and show the beauty, but as well the complexity of those forces, in a way, fighting each other, commerce versus creativity, for the audiences to, to actually make it palpable for their own daily life and, and kind of understand. But at the same time, still appreciate that it's slightly unattainable, which is high old fashioned, you know, 100,000 pounds gowns are not attainable for many of us. In the end, it's less the unattainability of the content and more the sort of human cost that you're quite unflinching in depicting. It's almost like over the course of the four episodes, the kingdom of dreams becomes a kingdom of nightmares in a way. And 
it's very graphic. And for an audience that maybe doesn't know those stories, there are elements of it that will probably be quite shocking. Yes, I, I think that is the case. I mean, when we first started looking at the cuts, Nick Green, series director, and Adam Finch were making of episode four, where they wove together very elegantly all of the collateral damage that the Kingdom of Dreams was causing. It was a bit of a shock to see it all coming together in that way. And I think, Tim, you talk about how dramatic it is that you have these extraordinary wizards of design sort of each in succession, crashing and burning in different ways. I mean, it's something we constantly sort of thought about. And there's always a sort of, I suppose, a sort of temptation to say, well, it's kind of like the business people's fault. But we never really felt that that was the case. I mean, you have this sort of culture conflict, culture clash between, on one hand, the executives who are all trained in management schools. They know nothing really about creativity. I genuinely don't think that they understood what it was that they were asking their wizards to do in ramping up the number of collections every year and the human toll that would take and the addictions that it kind of brought out in them. It really was like two worlds that at some point came together quite magnificently, but then there was this sort of like point where they started to repel each other, really. And it is disturbing to see the fallout and not just the fallout psychologically for the designers, but also for the planet as fashion speeds up and speeds up and speeds up. And the number of collections, I think Anna Winter called it the seasonless cycle of fashion, as that came to sort of bear in the early 2000s, there was inevitably going to be a fallout for the planet in terms of the environmental costs. So in our minds, that was always where the series was going to go. And because the series covers that whole sweep of the 90s through to the 2000s, where fashion was globalized, And it became something that a lot more people were familiar with. Maybe 20 years earlier, the average magazine reader wouldn't necessarily have known designers' names, but then everybody did start to know those people, and they really did insinuate themselves into popular culture in so many ways. But ultimately, we are left with this scenario where there is just too much of everything, And the inability to cope with too much. Well, the planet's now facing that, obviously. I mean, would you say it's a cautionary tale or in the grand scheme of things, it does have a sort of mythical beginning, middle and end, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. Peter just alluded to now is Faustian Pact. What those designers went to and accepted to actually go from just the name above their door to being, as you rightly said, so massive global brands, which everyone can recognize. That's at the cost for them and at the cost for the planet. But at the same time, that Faustian pack come to us as a consumer. And I think you are completely right. It's a cautionary tale because we are all guilty. Look what I'm wearing. We are all guilty in some sense because we are all guilty. I think the fallout at the human level of some of our designer, we have a cult of stardom, of cult of personalities that we haven't helped, and some of those designers believe the hype. They might have been extremely talented. They believe the hype. And then, actually, I think the brands themselves believe the hype of themselves. But in a way, the suit people <laughs> that Peter alluded to, again, that's their job. They have shareholders, and they need to increase the margins, and they need to increase the, the revenues. This is part of the global capitalistic and liberal system we live in. I'm not pointing a finger at it. I'm part of it. I kind of 
almost enjoy in my little world of the film industry. But we do have to take a certain amount of responsibility at all the levels. And I don't think we wanted the audience to go away and just think about the fashion industry as, oh, look the way they've done it, they're horrible. No, 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 no. You can turn your fingers on everyone. And anyone who buys anything which you put on your body as the character in The Devil's Wear Prada, that colors has been decided at the top and fitted all the way down. That shape is decided at the top. And do you remember the bum stuff from Alexander McQueen, the really, really low cut trousers? Lee made them extremely low. So at a commercial to sell to the punters, they couldn't go that low. It would be almost vulgarly low. But they went pretty low. And for 10, 15 years after that, every boy and girl, especially young women, were wearing extremely low trousers. And that got filtered from those early 90s shows. It took a while to set up. But by the mid to late 90s, from the Britney Spears to the Spice Girls, and everyone was wearing that. And it's, it's fascinating that... Very quickly, fashion has to create another shape of trousers to sell way more and for all of us to throw away all those low cuts. And now the 90s are back where everything is a bit higher, everything is a bit more baggy and comfortable. I tell you that within the next three to five years, everything will be skinny again and tight. And, and you're constantly like playing catch up. You're like, oh, I can't wear this. Oh, I can't wear that. I can't wear that color. I can't wear that top. And can our planet sustain that? And can we force countries in certain parts of the world which actually make our garments? Can we push on that pressure? Can we keep on pushing that? We are all responsible. We didn't make a show to point the fingers at anyone but ourselves. The first thing we did when we got our team together is we made everybody watch Meryl Streep's Cerulean Blue speech from Devil Wears Prada. Because you were saying before, fashion is, you know, it may seem remote and not connected to people's lives. But I think that speech is absolutely the thing that says, well, you might think that you just picked that that horrible uh, cerulean blue jumper out of a pile of stuff, but actually, and it's just random, it's got nothing to do with what we do here at the equivalent of Vogue, but actually it absolutely does because that colour was used by Yves Saint Laurent and it was recycled by Oscar de la Renta and, 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 and so on and so forth. And that's how it filtered down to the pile of stuff. And so that was really important for us, that in episode one, when we start the journey, we are seeing this sort of rarefied world of designers coming out of club culture and moving into couture houses that don't feel connected necessarily to the general audience's everyday lives. But by the end of the show, we're seeing how, to an extent, the success of those couture houses in becoming global brands has actually impacted what everyone wears and how everyone thinks of their clothes and instant gratification and just wearing something you buy from Zara twice and then throwing it into a rubbish heap. It was never supposed to be an issue documentary, by the way. It was always, we always treat these things as elements of narrative and coming out of characters and relationships on the screen. But of course, that was something that was uppermost in our minds. Well, the tentpoles of fashion are desire and insecurity And then what I've been saying for ages is people need a sort of re-education in the idea of value so they don't throw things away after wearing them twice, that they appreciate the amount of work, the amount of human effort that goes into every single thing that they buy. And I think what the series focuses on so rivetingly is personalities. Who was the most absorbing person for you in the whole thing? when you were making this? Who did you find yourself being drawn to 
over and over again with a sort of serpent-like fascination. For the team that came new to this project, Lee McQueen is always, I think, someone that everyone loves because of the story and, and, and all the rest of it. Personally, because, you know, we had lived within the world of Alexander McQueen for so long, I was very interested in Monsieur Pinot. Yeah, I just find it fascinating, the character, because despite he's on the business side, he does see the art of business as an art. But I think that Monsieur Pinot, maybe as well his background and how he got to where he is right now, I find it really fascinating. And potentially as a person, I identify more with a lion, someone that works with instincts and just just makes decisions and stick with his gun more than actually calculating things. So yeah, for me, Mr. Pino is a very interesting character. I love them all in their different ways, but I, I became so fascinated by Tom Ford in the course of this series because it struck me that he was sort of almost like a Steve Jobs of fashion. He was so sort of prescient in the way that he saw clothes and their role in society and married celebrity culture with those early collections at Gucci and just accepted that what he was doing, which other people might regard as an art form, was a business and that he, of course he had to make it, the clothes had to be immaculate and they had to look fabulous. But his marketing skills, and I think that's where I kind of like felt he was a sort of Steve Jobs figure, his marketing skills and the way that he put the image of Gucci out there was just extraordinary. And it, it seemed to us that he he was almost like the design wizard who wanted to be the emperor and thought he was the emperor. And then there is this moment where Pino just evicts him from the conglomerate of Gucci. The truth of that is obviously that his contract had wound up and it wasn't renewed. But as Pino says, we wanted to go a different way. We didn't need Tom anymore. Gucci was bigger than Tom Ford. Now, as with the very best stories, it doesn't need a narrator. So it's all the voices of the people, of the individuals, and the saga moves forward on their voices. You know, I remember at the time, we had a, an idea of what was happening. Obviously, it wasn't publicized, the various things that were going on with Tom and Pino or with Saint Laurent and Tom or the various stories that you'd hear whispers about. But then to see them now, the actual protagonist saying what was happening, it's very, um, well... Educational, I guess, is one word I would use. It's very enlightening. I find the footage of Anna Winter fascinating. Some, I think it's a Dana Thomas calls her the tycoon whisperer. And then, of course, the miracle of editing, you get to see her whispering into a tycoon's ear at that very point. And you get the sense of all the machinations, you know, how it was like a sort of Renaissance court. The whole thing with people jockeying and, and little backroom hints that suddenly turn into like a major career for somebody. I find all of that, even as somebody who's worked in fashion for a long time, of course, I'm endlessly fascinated by all of that. But I wonder how hard was it for you to find all of that, to put it together in a way that doesn't sort of make teams of lawyers descend on you in a rage? It's still to be continued. <laughs> if the team of lawyers comes down on us. I mean, we have we have team of lawyers as well, and they are very, very cautious and very, very experienced in telling us what can be used and what cannot be used. At the end of the day, though, team, we never said anything that hasn't been said 
or which is not sort of present. Do you see what I mean? We we haven't bended the word. Peter and I and the team, we are documentary filmmakers, so the truth is very important. And we're not journalists and definitely not scandalous journalists. So it's not about digging potentially what could be clickbait. That's one of the luxury of the heydays of documentary filmmaking right now is we have decent budget, so we have decent amount of time to actually research things properly and really go into details, but at the same time kind of choose what is right and wrong to, to use. And to go back to your point is those interviews are accessible. But I think the character uh, of Anna Winter, she didn't grant us an interview despite we've tried our best. It's amazing what you can actually do with archive. And it's amazing many times people are like, oh, you haven't got the real person. And actually someone said yesterday, my God, suddenly after finishing the series, I realized you actually didn't interview her. But her voice is so well crafted within the narrative and all the interviews you you unraveled and all of the bits of those interviews, storytelling bit that you use within the crafting the narrative makes it feel that you had her giving you an interview. And it's the same for many of our main protagonists. But again, the list of contributors, i.e. yourself as well, and the generosity of all those contributors that we actually filmed and shared their the knowledge, the memories, and the generosity to accept that. Because we feel, Peter and I really feel that as soon as someone grants you an interview, you have a huge responsibility emotionally for the person themselves and emotionally of what they're going to convey afterwards. Everything you do has to be with the utmost amount of class. And so all these people have actually granted us an interview and the way we crafted it, we made it as a dialogue. So that's why you referred to earlier in, in your question of like, we don't need narrative voiceover because we create the dialogue or we create almost like in a movie, a scene where people would be around a table and discussing things. And out of all of that dialogue between one, two, three, four, five protagonists mixed up between the contributors we film and the archive, we create a bed of a dialogue and a voiceover, almost an endless voiceover. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, 
and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Another thing that was really fascinating for me is the amount of footage you have of Monsieur Arnaud, because obviously he is quite a sphinx-like character in fashion now. And it's interesting to see that there was a moment when he did seem extremely accessible. I mean, there were scenes of him playing the piano. There were scenes of him engaging with people in a very easygoing way. And then also in the film, you, you, you talk about your admiration for Francois Pinault. And I guess it's a voice in the film says in France, Pinault was considered the lion and Arnaud was considered the snake. It's nice to have those words in somebody else's mouth, but it's a very graphic distillation. You sort of think back to medieval kings or they had names like Richard the Lionheart and Irving the Snake or something. In a funny way, the whole story just plays into your hands really, really well, doesn't it? It really does. And I just want to say about the archive, because we knew we could make the series as soon as we finished McQueen, because we had sort of found a number of archives that just were so rich and covered the whole period so extensively with interviews, with behind the scenes, with the shows themselves. So we kind of had a sense that given that we'd found a certain amount from McQueen, that there must be a lot of other stuff out there. Dora, our archive producer, started working with us four years ago on the archive research. And from the beginning, Ian and I were saying, look, we think that the most difficult people to cover are going to be Arno and Pino. And so there was always a special focus on trying to find every single recorded interview with them. And Dora just found some amazing stuff. And Pino is more difficult because he was less in the public eye, very deliberately. But there's still some lovely moments. I mean, there's a great moment where, because they were old friends turned bitter rivals during this story. And there's a great moment where Arno is complaining about Pino, saying, you know, he knew I wanted Gucci, but he didn't even give me a call to sort of tell me what he wanted. And then Pino, in another bit of archive, sort of responds to that and says, well, you don't tell your enemy just before you're about to attack when you're going to attack them. So you have those moments that are just gifts. And then it just becomes a sort of team effort led by ourselves and the directors to really make sure that we're fitting the different archive pieces together to really make the puzzle play out for the audience. Now you've used Dana Thomas's book, Deluxe, in the opening credits. It's inspired by. What was it about that book that suggested this particular production to you? 
How did it inspire you? I enjoyed the book, and I think there is an element of journalistic aspect to the book, but as well, it's very well narrated. It just comes alive. She's very, very good writer to make the characters come alive, and the issues and the and the struggle, and she as both of you said, you are aware of certain things. You live through the period, you know the names, you know the, the brands. In a way, she helped us connect the dot. We read a lot of other books and we talked to a lot of other people in the archive. Let's say we had the idea, we had an embryonic idea of what we want to do, but you almost consolidated and almost warranted creatively and narratively that there was a true story to tell. Again, that's, that's something, you know, Peter and I, we are documentary filmmaker, but almost with, we borrow so much of the tools of fiction. So it's all about the story. It's not just about the information itself. We like that there is a narrative and an emotional narrative. And I think for me, I'm sure Peter has got his own vision of it. But when I read the book, I was hooked and all those subjects. And there's many things we didn't touch upon that are in our books, such as and, and the war of the internet retail, which we hardly touch upon, but new kingdoms or new tycoons have emerged from those things. Then the established tycoons shifted their own practices to adapt to that. Maybe it's my misty-eyed view of those years. Do you think there would have been the grandeur that comes through in Kingdom of Dreams? It's a tragedy because it's a huge grand story and I feel that subsequently when you get into the battle of the online retailers and so on it changes you cannot look at McQueen and Galliano shows or Mark Jacobs last show for Louis Vuitton the black show without being kind of overwhelmed at the scale of things then at the opportunities that people had to create these spectacles I feel that it's very hard to look at the show and not think of, of what has gone from fashion. I mean, obviously, it had to, I suppose, just for the health of everybody involved. But you do get that sense of a sort of golden era. I mean, that's certainly how we felt about it. I mean, obviously, we got to know that golden era really through McQueen initially. And while we were working on McQueen, we were also watching... Galliano's shows because there was a rivalry and then looking at almost how I mean you've said it yourself Tim that this sort of almost sense that they were competing in grandeur against one another that McQueen was trying to measure up and surpass the the designer who'd previously been the benchmark of the London designer going to Paris I think that that was extraordinary and then sort of like seeing the Americans work and seeing whether it was Tom's Velvet collection at Gucci or Mark's grunge collection for Perry Ellis. I mean, these were just extraordinary moments that seemed to come out of nowhere, but somehow all connected up with each other. One thing we learned on McQueen was that putting a fashion show in a narrative is almost like having a musical number. It kind of moves the story on and it sets up the stakes and, and yet it's visually spectacular and resplendent in and of itself. To go back to being in the present during those spectacles, you mentioned those fashion shows versus nowadays and, and, and the accessibility through social media. And right now, everyone wants their fashion show through their phones because they want to blog about it or they want to share it online and all the rest of it. Back then, the two, three or 400 people invited were witnessing something that no one would see for a while. 
And I think you can actually extend that to different artistries, such as music. Right now, a lot of musicians are grateful towards social media because they can put out their work, but constantly they have to put out stuff to keep the audience interested. So the incubating process and the excitement that potentially build within an audience, like in the 90s, because maybe two or 300 people had seen the show and they talk about it and then everyone talks about it, but nobody can actually seize it or touch it would build those mythical sort of moments. You know, we're talking about number 13 for Alexander McQueen with the robot painting Shalom, Arlo. The footage is, you look at it, you can see the emotion on the audience, you can see the emotion on Lee. It's just, as you said, it might not happen again. And was Karl Lagerfeld potentially the last one to create those amazing Soar channel? How the suits and those conglomerates preventing the designer because it's not, rent, you know, it doesn't bring enough money. If you spend, let's say, half a million quid or a million quid on the show, how much do you have to sell to justify that? But how much are we losing? Because then the fashion show is not as special as it is before. But we believe a modern audience, a contemporary young audience, would benefit hugely to watch the show, to understand what it was back then. We're not talking about, oh, it was much better back then when I was young and all the rest of it. Because I think I see incredible work. I see incredible work in the makeup world within fashion. I see incredibly talented people in the jewelry world. If you love creativity and you love visual art, you look at fashion and you're like, oh my God, they're so good. I wish I was as good as them. I think Peter and I constantly look at fashion and the fashion world like this. We just don't want it to be crushed. Money is a great thing, Tim. Money, as you rightly said, so in the 90s and the noughties, allowed and permitted those people to elevate their art to a level never seen before. Some of John Galliano's show for, for Dior, without the backing from Mr. Arno, would never been as good as that. So you needed that, that balance with money. And I think I'm hoping the, the new generation can find the balance with attracting enough money to create what they need to create, but as well protect themselves and protect their name. One last thing I wanted to say is, it's very, it fascinates me why fashion designers put their name on their brand. John Galliano, Lee McQueen, all those brands that are going to carry on for maybe, Alexander McQueen will be there for, for 100 years. But Alexander McQueen, who knows who was Lee Alexander McQueen who is there? You know, who is Gary McQueen lives with his name constantly on top of buildings? Why didn't they choose a brand? So if they lose the name, if they sell the name, if anything happens, they go bankrupt. It's not their name that goes away. And those people, if you lose Alexander McQueen, it's not a person, it's a brand. It's a cautionary tale that we're talking about, that you have to be very careful that the person doesn't become the brand and doesn't the brand doesn't surpass the person. Yeah, but that story is reliant on the genius of the original creator. I mean, you, to remain in history, to remain present. There's a scene in the documentary which is exactly that in a nutshell when Yves Saint Laurent is talking to Bernard Arnault at a Louis Vuitton show and he's basically saying, I wonder if anybody lost their job over this, but, but the actual filming of it, but he's he basically saying to Bernard Arnault, save me from Tom Ford save me from what that man is doing to my reputation. And then Pierre Berger, Saint Laurent's partner, reminds him that there are cameras and microphones everywhere, but he keeps on doing it. And so I think Saint Laurent's a really good case in point because for fashion people, he's the greatest designer of all time, the most influential. He changed things. 
But for most people, Yves Saint Laurent himself doesn't really exist as a an entity anymore. I mean, Saint Laurent's huge, but now it's Saint Laurent. It's not Yves Saint Laurent. So I think he's a, a case in point that when Alexander McQueen, will, the brand will last for 100 years, I don't think Lee McQueen himself will ever fade from public consciousness, but I think he's quite rare in that respect. This is one thing that comes out of a, a show like Kingdom of Dreams, the power of the business people to sustain these brands And in the end, the way that they can dispense with the individual who created the brand in the first place. So uh, I don't know whether that's a cautionary tale or just a a sad acknowledgement of the way humanity rolls on and rolls over people. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is exactly that. And I I take what Ian was saying, by the way, as well. You know, why not call your brand something else? But I think that there was that tradition that went back to Chanel and Christian Dior, that you named your house after you. And that is what designers, young designers wanted to do. They wanted to be known in the same sort of way. But of course, the cost of being known in the same way, that you can't control what happens to your name. I mean, we did an interview for McQueen with Romeo Gili, and an absolute genius, and who McQueen apprenticed with for a while. And he lost his name and kind of it is a Faustian pact because you lose your name and in a sense you lose your identity, you lose your soul. And that's what seemed to happen to each of the designers. I mean, Ford maybe not so much because he was designing for Gucci and he kept, so therefore he was able to keep his name and when he left Gucci, he was able to start a Tom Ford brand. But certainly the others, they all lost control of their names And there was a very poignant interview that McQueen gave to Jeannie Becker, where McQueen said, you know, after I'm gone, just burn the house down. He didn't want his name to continue. In that moment of the interview, that's absolutely what he said. He didn't lose control of his house. I mean, he he sold it to a corporation. Are you saying that it burned him out, that the, the sale to the corporation ultimately was responsible for burning him out? I think what Kingdom of Dreams does show is that move from when Tom Ford and Domenico de Sole left Gucci Group and it became caring, you know, as one of the characters said, and the little men with suits and clipboards moved in. And the sense is certainly that although McQueen was producing some of his greatest shows towards the end of his life, there were also demands that were being made on him that he didn't agree with about where he should be focusing the business and creativity, you know, producing more and more scarves. There's a sense Maybe that the pressures didn't kill him, but he he fell out of love with it. And once he'd fallen out of love with what he was doing, what was left for him? I totally agree with Peter. But at the same time, I think potentially the brand, the house of McQueen would not have survived without the deal. And that's what is really interesting, Tim. And that's why it's what we try to do with Kingdom of Dreams or, or our work or our knowledge of the situation. I hope people get a sense of it is that. It's a very thin line. It's not as simple as the pressures and all the rest of it because he does have to sell more scarf, but he might not want to sell more scarf. And that's the duality and the constant battle that artists have with themselves. You know, the best thing when an artist gets successful and manages to sell loads of scarf or, or let's say a, a painter of the level of Damien Hirst can, you know, every time he paints, people want his work. 
it's just you have to accept that and you have to love it. But if you want to suddenly go back to a more of a, a small artisanal and, and really you control every single level of the chain from the idea making to actually who you sell to, then as soon as you enter the Faustian pack with a, a conglomerate, or with any corporation, it doesn't have to be a big conglomerate. It's, you know, new new pressure comes in. And, and I think you rightly said one time when we discussed is that some of the seed of destruction was inside some of the people as well. I think Kingdom of Dream is not a finger pointing towards the business or of Vogue or anything like this. It's, the whole thing was needed. Monsieur Arnaud needed to take over some of those houses to actually revamp them. And otherwise they would have died. You know, sometime you have to do the first jump pack, otherwise the name doesn't survive. I'm going to ask you one question, Tim, actually, about you just said something about you think Lee Alexander McQueen will never be forgotten. Are we trying to forget? Is it actually right now more important the brand? We need to forget a little bit about the men or the women behind the brand because of certain things that might not have been corporately friendly, some behavior or whatever. And are we seeing that with someone, another great creative African-American creative person right now? I am hoping that people like all of us right now in this conversation will never forget these people and will constantly remind the people in the future how great these people are. I think it happens in every artistic field. The most successful artist of the 19th century was John Martin most successful commercial artist of the 19th century. Now, who remembers him now? But what strikes me about somebody like Lee is when you speak to young fashion designers or fashion students, the keepers of the flame, I mean, he will live in, he will live in memory, maybe if he isn't wildly celebrated as he was with the Savage Beauty exhibition. I think that the four people that you chose in the show you chose them because they will be talked about. And whenever people talk about fashion, they're the people that will be talked about. And in a way, they're, maybe they're a transition between what, what Christian Dior never had to worry about selling more skull scarves or anything. Christian Dior himself. I mean, I mean couturiers, there was no pressure on them to make a bag that was going to move 200,000 units or whatever. But these designers straddled that creativity and the commerce that we see in fashion now. They were bridge figures, I guess. What the documentary leaves me wondering is if creativity and commerce are ultimately reconcilable to everybody's satisfaction. There's always going to be an unhappy ending. I mean, after finishing the the series, what do you feel about that? Gosh, I I mean, I remember an interview. As you were talking, I just remembered this moment where you did an interview with Lee that you kindly let us listen to and use parts of in, in, in McQueen. And there's one moment where Lee's talking about the commercial pressures on him. And you sort of say, well, wouldn't you be actually just happier with one store? And he, it, it's almost like there's a pause. He doesn't quite know how to answer that question. It's kind of like it's so alien to what he's become and where he's at at this point of his career. And I do think it's to do with the scale. that Once you're sort of like saying, you're going to be doing various collections um, that are going to appeal to various demographics in different ways that you're going to be responsible for the perfumes and the scarves and the accessories. And, and you're going to be doing resort and cruise collections as well as the cheaper lines. That's what leads to this sort of like point where 
the commerce takes over entirely from the creativity. And what made those designers special and unique is sort of now mass produced and mass distributed all over the world. And, and so I think it's inevitable that, that the two things are now so out of balance. But of course, that there is a way of commerce and quality and creativity being more in balance. And, you know, in a sense, um, maybe we have to go back to the past where people buy fewer things of better quality, where, I mean, you talk about about Dior. He did have those commercial presses. He was working with Marcel Boussac. And the idea of having perfumes as a gateway to the brand was not something that came up in the Arno Pino period. That goes right back to Chanel and Dior and others. And so I think you don't want to go backwards, but how do you stop this overabundance, or just abundance, actually, of everything that in the fourth episode, you're just seeing the, the logos and the branding everywhere. And it's just sort of like taken over. And yeah, it's, it's how do we get more balance back? Because there's no doubt that creativity and commerce can exist in, you know, we have the same pressures. We're making a series like Kingdom of Dreams. We have exactly the same pressures on us. We have to balance the commercial requirements of our broadcasters with the way that we want to tell stories and we have to sort of arrive at some happy medium if it's possible i totally agree with that i'm gonna ask you tim and it's not a question it's almost a favor when we met mcqueen we could never show the film to alexander mcqueen so the closest sort of reaction from the main protagonist is through his family which obviously has been really good and then seeing how people love the film we just feel potentially warranted that we did some something correct or right. With Kingdom of Dreams, three of our lead designers are still present with us. We haven't managed to talk to them live and do an interview, but Peter and I have got so much love and admiration for them, for their work. You mentioned that we are a bit the outsiders of the industry. We feel that the industry makes us feel the outsider. We come with a little white flag. We're not there to bastardize anything. We're actually there to celebrate everything. So if you do see them, Tell them how much we like their work and how much we would love to talk, not on camera, obviously, but just we'd love them to see it. We'd love them to be unhappy and criticize us because we are all creative and we would love to hear. You know, John Galliano, for me, is someone that I'd love to have a, a drink, a lunch, a cafe with, probably a cafe and, 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 and a lunch with. Do you see what I mean? Because what is creative has inspired me as a young creative and will inspire generation and generation. I just would love to hear from them because this series is actually to make sure they never set in stone in one little moment or one little mistake or one little thing that happened. We wanted people to get a sense of the scale of what they achieve. As you said, as, as almost like a, a pivoting act because before them, Nobody had to sell to massive conglomerate. The conglomerate didn't exist. That amount of money wasn't present. So they had to make it all up. And most of them, as we alluded in the film, are from a working class background. They don't come with a, a major in business. They don't come with an MBA from Harvard or university. They are young, creative people, some coming out of St. Martin's. So what they've achieved is amazing. And Tom, John, and Mark, we love them and we think they're amazing, whatever they've done. And even if they've made a few mistakes along the way, it doesn't matter. It doesn't take anything away from what they've achieved. 
Yeah, put in the good word for us. But but it's it's also, I would just say that, you know, obviously we end Kingdom of Dreams on a very tragic note. And as you say, when we come to the Black Show, it's kind of feels to, it always felt to us like this was the funeral for this whole period. So we didn't really sort of like look at what happens to the surviving designers after the end of the story. But I would just say, you know, it was just astounding to look at Galliano's last collection for Margiela. And there's still an element, I guess, of him being a kind of persona non grata within the wider culture. But how extraordinary to look at that collection and trace it back to some of those early silhouettes that he created and see how his art is developing and flourishing now. That was really a, a wonderful moment. And if we're ever allowed to do a sequel to Kingdom of Dreams, that would, it would be lovely to show that and to show also how someone like Tom Ford has become a, such a terrific filmmaker as well as a designer. So, yeah, it's a pity that we had to close off the, um, the story before we could rehabilitate <laughs> these amazing people. The world loves the sequel. And the world loves the sequel. I will, we'll end it there. And I just want to say thank you so much, Ian. Thank you so much, Peter, for this wonderful series. And my takeaway is the timeless lesson. Ian, you talked about a Faustian pact through um, our whole conversation here. And obviously, the moral of the story is be careful what you wish for. What could possibly go wrong? Thank you very much. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Tim. The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark, Kate Vartan, and Eric Bria in the BOF studio team. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.